Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, Interim Chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We are joined here today by my colleague in clinical microbiology, Dr. Robin Battelle. Dr. Battelle is the co-director of the Clinical Bacteriology Laboratory at Mayo Clinic and the director of the Mayo Clinic Infectious Diseases Research Laboratory, where she studies bacterial biofilms, antimicrobial resistance, periprosthetic joint infection, and diagnostic testing of bacteria. Dr. Battelle is highly accomplished with more than 540 peer-reviewed manuscripts, including a recent article on periprosthetic joint infections published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Congratulations on that, Dr. Battelle. She's here today to talk to us about some bacteria that have recently been making headlines. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Battelle. It's a pleasure to be here. So you're one of our top experts in the field of clinical bacteriology and antimicrobial resistance, and there's been a lot in the news on this general topic, so I'm glad you can provide some insights for our audience. So let's first start with Group A streptococcus. So recently there have been reports in the news about rising cases of Group A strep, which is a bacteria found in the throat and skin, among other places. So do you find this concerning, and can you give us a little information about this? Yeah, thanks for the question. Group A strep is also known as Streptococcus pyogenes. And as you mentioned, it's a type of bacteria. It's a common cause of sore throat. Sore throat is most common in children when caused by this organism, but it can affect people of all ages. Some findings might include throat pain, painful swallowing, red and swollen tonsils, sometimes with white patches or streaks of pus tiny red spots on the back of the roof of the mouth, swollen, tender neck lymph nodes, fever, headache, nausea or vomiting, especially in young children, body aches, and sometimes even rash. And this organism is also the cause of scarlet fever. With strep throat though, the bacterium rarely spreads beyond the throat. Although if it is untreated, strep throat can cause immunologic complications like kidney inflammation or rheumatic fever, but those are actually pretty uncommon. While strep throat is the most common manifestation of infection, this bacteria can also cause wound infections, such as what we call impetigo erysipelas or cellulitis, and it can cause what's called purpural sepsis, meaning infection of the genital tract occurring during or after labor. Necrotizing fasciitis and toxic shock syndrome are the most feared types of infection. They're what we consider invasive. Necrotizing fasciitis is also sometimes referred to as flesh-eating strep. And for those joining on video, here's <laughs> I love it. Giant micro flesh-eating strep. And it has this title because tissues can be consumed by invading bacteria, often with muscle necrosis. Toxic shock syndrome, like the name suggests, is caused by a toxin that's made by the bacterium. And patients can have muscle aches, chills, pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, low blood pressure, shock, and organ failure. There are other serious infections though, such as pneumonia that can occur. One of the challenges, Dr. Pritt, with this bacterium is that not all types of infections are tracked by public health departments. Usually, but not always, it's only the most serious manifestations that are being monitored. So what's going on is that we're seeing reports of increased invasive infections beginning in 2022. 
For example, in the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, France, Ireland, and Sweden, there have been reported increased primarily pediatric invasive group A streptococcus disease cases, and in some cases, scarlet fever as well, again in 2022. This 2022 increase was in comparison to pre-COVID-19 pandemic years. In the first two years of the pandemic, there were actually relatively few cases. Unfortunately, there have been several deaths in children less than 10 years of age. There was also some suggestion of an increased rate of lower respiratory infections like pneumonia in children in late 2022. Co-infections with varicella zoster virus and respiratory viruses were noted in patients with invasive infections. And what's happening in the US? According to the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention website, the United States is looking into an increase in invasive group A strep infections in children. For example, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment is monitoring an increase in pediatric hospitalizations caused by group A strep. Here in Minnesota, the Minnesota Department of Health reported 46 invasive cases in November, and that was higher than in the previous months. And similar findings were reported from Texas Children's Hospital. Well, it's definitely a bad bacterium or can be. Like you said, a lot of people just may have this as part of their normal flora, but so why are we seeing these cases now of these different types of disease with this bacterium? That is a really good question. <laughs> when we hear about increased cases, we tend to think of a particular strain or maybe antibiotic resistance. Although investigations are ongoing, early data suggests that the surge is not related to a specific or new strain or an increase in antibiotic resistance. Instead, the increase, which is largely but not exclusively in pediatric cases, may be attributable to a large pool of susceptible individuals, especially children, that developed because of decreased circulation and hence reduced exposure to streptococcus pyogenes and or other predisposing infections because of physical distancing during the COVID-19 pandemic. After two years of low incidence, resurgence of predisposing respiratory viral and varicella zoster virus infections, the latter especially so in some European countries that don't routinely vaccinate against varicella zoster virus, may have amplified the resurgence of invasive group A strep infections. Hmm. Although public health departments don't usually track diagnoses of strep throat, which as I mentioned, are really common, we at Mayo Clinic do. And we have some interesting data from the laboratory that we share in real time with our healthcare providers directly seeing patients. So what did we find? Not surprisingly, we witnessed a large increase in patients testing positive for strep throat in November and December of 2022. The same thing, though, happened if you look pre-pandemic in 2017, 2018, and 2019, and even in the years before. Numbers will stay up for a few months and then typically bottom out by August of the year. Again, not surprisingly, in 2020, numbers plummeted around April 2020 and stayed down through 2021 and the first part of 2022. Fascinating. Well, it'll be interesting to follow this and see if we continue to have high numbers or if this will eventually settle down, so to speak. So from a laboratory standpoint, can you explain to our audience how we test for group A strep so that someone knows that they have that infection? Yes, well, testing depends on the type of infection. 
for strep throat, which again is the most common manifestation, testing a throat swab with a nucleic acid amplification test like PCR is recommended. Alternatively, an antigen test can be used, but it should be kept in mind that is this is less sensitive than a molecular test. And culture is another possibility, but results of culture can be slow. Good to know. And I've been involved in some of the studies that we've done together uh, on swabbing someone's throat for group A strep. Now that's the testing. Once the patient gets a diagnosis, let's say of group A strep infection, uh, strep throat, for example, how would that be treated? Treatment for strep throat is with an oral antibiotic. Penicillin or amoxicillin is the antibiotic choice. And fortunately, there's never been a report of a clinical isolate of group A strep resistant to penicillin. For patients with a penicillin allergy, recommended regimens include narrow-spectrum cephalosporins like cephalexin or cefadroxyl. If clindamycin, azithromycin, or clarithromycin is used, it should be kept in mind that resistance may exist and that we do not usually test patients with strep throat for antibiotic resistance. Treatment of invasive infections is, of course, more nuanced. Well, that makes sense. It's very helpful, Dr. Patel. Anything else we should know or keep an eye out for about strep infections, group A strep? Good question. Dr. Pritt, you didn't ask about prevention. Well, we don't have a vaccine for streptococcus pyogenes. Invasive infections are likely mitigated by vaccination against varicella zoster virus and possibly seasonal influenza virus and other respiratory viruses. It'd be nice if we had that vaccine for sure. Do you know if there are any on the horizon? The interesting thing about Streptococcus pyogenes is that there are many, many different strains. Immunogenicity is conferred by antibodies against a protein called M-protein, and there are many, many different versions of M-protein. So that's one reason why it might be difficult to develop a vaccine. And the other is, as I mentioned, there are some immunologic consequences of infection with Streptococcus pyogenes, such as rheumatic fever, and there's also a kidney inflammation that can ensue. And so I think we have to be careful as we develop immunity against this organism to make sure that it's protective immunity against the organism and not an immunity that might have adverse consequences to the host. Sure, that makes sense. Well, I'm gonna switch gears a little bit. After talking about group A strep, along a similar theme, we are also now seeing new reports of antibiotic-resistant gonorrhea. And given your expertise in the field of antibiotic resistance, can you tell us a little bit about this? And is this new or have the antibiotic-resistant bacteria been around for some time now? That's a great question. So just to back up, gonorrhea is a common sexually transmitted infection in the US and elsewhere. And the bacterium that causes gonorrhea called Neisseria gonorrhea has progressively developed resistance to antibiotics prescribed to treat it over many years. It used to be treated with a pill, but now because of resistance, an injected antibiotic called ceftriaxone is recommended. A novel strain of multi-drug non-susceptible Neisseria gonorrhea with reduced susceptibility to ceftriaxone, cefixime, as well as azithromycin and resistance to ciprofloxacin, penicillin, and tetracycline was recently identified in a Massachusetts resident. Although ceftriaxone was effective at clearing their infection, this is the first isolate identified in the United States to demonstrate resistance or reduced susceptibility 
to all drugs recommended for treatment. So to answer your question, this type of resistance is new in the United States. And the emergence of this type of resistance will complicate the ability to treat gonorrhea since we have few antibiotic options left that are simple, well-studied, well-tolerated, and known to be highly effective. Well, that's really important information and I guess goes back to the concept of prevention being key. Now, how do we test in the laboratory for these types of highly resistant cases? Well, first I'll talk about how we test for gonorrhea. The diagnostic approach to gonorrhea involves a molecular test, like a nucleic acid amplification test such as PCR. But what that tells us is whether Neisseria gonorrhea is present or not. And unfortunately, it doesn't provide any information as to exactly how to treat it based on individual patient susceptibility or resistance in their particular Neisseria gonorrhea strain. To know the answer to that question, either the organism has to be cultured and then various antibiotics tested against the grown organism, or resistance or susceptibility has to be detected molecularly. The reason culture is not used routinely is several fold. Most importantly, this bacterium does not grow well in culture. So we need to use special techniques if we want to try to grow it. But that also means that some patients will test falsely negative. And also culture is impractical as it was with Streptococcus pyogenes because results are delayed. I'm a big fan of approaching this problem molecularly, that is to detect resistance or susceptibility at the same time as diagnosis using a DNA-based approach. We know this is possible. We have done this with MRSA or MRSA and Helicobacter pylori, for example. And in my view, we, the scientific community, need to do this with gonorrhea. What this will also do is to enable the use of oral treatment in many cases, which is pretty exciting. So this approach is one I refer to as theranostics, diagnosing and defining therapy all at once. Yeah, that's great. It would be great to see if that was uh, on the diagnostic horizon. Well, I'm going to finish up by asking you a very broad question, which some of our listeners may be thinking is with all of this antibiotic resistance out there, it's, it's pretty scary to a lot of people. How can we reduce bacterial antibiotic resistance in general and from developing to begin with? First, I think we have to recognize that antibiotics can be life-saving drugs and they enable us to deliver other medical treatments such as surgery, transplantation, and chemotherapy that would be near impossible without having antibiotics. Therefore, we need to recognize we need them, but we also need to recognize that antibiotic resistance is a global crisis and it's probably only going to get worse. In my view, we need to deploy a multi-pronged approach to try to handle the situation. Antibiotics should only be used to treat bacterial infections. Therefore, we need better diagnostics to know when we are dealing with a bacterial infection or not. And if we are dealing with a bacterial infection, we need to know whether there is resistance present or not, as I described with Neisseria gonorrhea. We do need new antibiotics as well and alternative treatment approaches for those infections for which we've already run out of options or will run out of options in the future. And we need to determine how to appropriately dose antibiotics and the ideal duration thereof. Courses that are too long can cause harm and select for resistance, but sometimes we just don't know that ideal duration. 
vaccines can help prevent infections, including bacterial infections. And that can directly impact resistance. Even viral vaccines can help, as illustrated by the invasive group A strep situation that we discussed earlier. We're dealing with so many clinical syndromes, though, so many bacterial types, so many mechanisms of antibiotic resistance, that it's not just one solution. We need a multitude of tactics. And importantly, we won't solve resistance, but we can manage it, I believe, by deploying appropriate strategies. That was really helpful, Dr. Bachel. We probably should have another session at some point just on the worldwide emergency that we're in right now with antimicrobial resistance. Um, Well, I think we'll stop with these two topics for today. Thank you so much again for joining us and giving us such helpful information. And we'll look forward to future discussions. My pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday.